country. My name is Justin Weller, and you may notice some different music. That's because our guest today is Chad Gorn, who, together with myself and two other marks, were made up the Phoenix Trap back in the 90s in Philadelphia. This is a recording of our work. And uh, Chad has continued his musical career, and we have a great conversation today on uh, Sunday, October 4th, 2020. Hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, here is Chad Gorn. Well, Chad, how are you doing today? It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's crazy. Uh, just to give everybody a little bit of background, uh, Chad and I were in a band together called the Phoenix Trap, the greatest band that ever lived. Uh, in Philly. Rock Roll Hall of Fame. That's right. That's right. I I, uh, I haven't got my invitation yet. But um, in Philadelphia in the late '90s, I want to say I don't remember exactly, Chad. Do you what year we started together? Probably like '97 somewhere in there. Yeah. So the date on the CD says '98. So I would say we probably started '97. Yeah, that's right. So we have an EP. Maybe we'll get into playing it later. I'm sure everybody would love that. But. Um, you know, we were in that band and recorded an EP in 98 and then in 99, I had to leave. I, I uh, uh, moved to Florida for work, actually. So uh, Chad and I have stayed in loose contact. We actually worked on a side project for a little bit since then. But um, I'm interested, Chad, like what's been your musical journey since, uh, since uh, you know, 98, 99? So just to kind of back up a little bit. So before the Phoenix Trap, there was a a band called Potter's Field, and it's relevant that I kind of go through a little bit of history, but uh, Potter's Field started with me as a singer, and then we have Mark Gardner on bass, and another guy on drums. We got another singer. He left, moved to New York. Uh, then we got another singer, Chris Rich, our mutual friend, mm-hmm. moved to Massachusetts, and then the drummer left, and then we said, let's just restart the band again. Then we got you. You left. <laughs> and the uh, then we got two other singers, Matt Jarema and Lori Berger. Then they both left the band. And now it's, it's at this point, me and, and Mark Gardner and Mark Robarn, who was a drummer. And after they left, we got this girl named Jay, Jay Pierce. She was in the band for about a year, then she left. She moved to North Carolina. So basically that was like the whole history of the band until we got our last singer, uh, Teresa, in 2000. 2000 it was in 2000 um and we actually had her in the band for about four years recorded an album um and then she wound up getting a a vocal cord paralysis which we didn't know like we were playing games and she was sounding bad we just thought oh she's sick or she you know had a bad night or something but it turned out to be paralysis and that pretty much ended her singing career, which is a shame because she was a uh, excellent singer. Um, so since then, I didn't really do much with music. I was, I was actually kind of grateful not to have to worry about, um, you know, booking gigs, lugging equipment to play for five people, you know, uh, and I like, have to get up for work the next day. Uh, but then a couple years later, I started playing bass for. Uh, the Dylan McGuire band. Dylan McGuire was he used to be in a band called Broken Jones, which they were around about the same time as the Phoenix Trap. Um, then I went back and forth with him between playing bass and playing guitar, depending on 
who else he got? He, you know, he got like a better bassist, so I moved to guitar, and then the bassist left, so I moved back to bass. You know, it kind of went back and forth like that. And then that lasted, uh, I don't know, three, four years. Um, and for that, I was actually kind of happy not to be the main guy, not to be the singer or the songwriter or the booking guy or the manager. Like I was, you know, I was happy just to be told, hey, Chad, show up here at this time. You know, <laughs> it was like, yeah, I, for sure. I mean, like, I love that story, right? Because that's sort of why I got out of it, too. And like, it, it's so it was so hard at that point. And I'm sure it is still. I haven't tried for years, but just like keeping a band together. Like, it seems like as soon as you practice enough and because I, I was in a few bands before the Phoenix Trap. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, as soon as you practice enough where you start to sound you know, decent, and it's like, okay, we can get a gig going. It seemed like every time that happened, somebody would leave, right? Right. And uh, that's the way it is, you know, young people figuring out their lives, and it sounds like there was like a hex on on the Phoenix Trap, <laughs> like if you became the lead singer, you had to move from Philly. But <laughs> but that was always really difficult, you know? And, and like you said, I mean, I heard um, John Mayer say this once, and he turned out to do it, like, I'd love to just quit and be uh, the guitar player in a band. You know, and he right. did that with the Grateful Dead, right? Like, for sure. Like, that too always bothered me. Like, being in front and having to figure out where to get, where the next gig comes from and all that sort of stuff. I, I really didn't like any of that. You know, I would just like to be, you know, the piano player in somebody's band or something like that. It's really challenging. Yeah. I mean, I, I really enjoy the, the 45 minutes on stage. <laughs> yeah. You know, and like, if, if there ever was, a crowd I'm like boy I'm in the safest place possible I'm, I'm on stage I have you know some room between me and the other people and uh, I can watch everything yeah I, 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 I so I could probably say that I miss the playing on stage um, just because that part's fun mm-hmm. um, I don't miss the five minutes before you play where you're, where you're frantically getting things together and the five minutes after you play where you're frantically getting things off <laughs> You know, like yeah. everything, like uh, Roger Waters, um, you know, he, when he was doing his uh, his uh, tour of the wall a few years ago, he did an interview and someone said, oh, you're, you know, 75 years old. Isn't this like a lot of work for you? Isn't this hard? He's like, no, it's the easiest job in the world. You know, I do nothing. I get on stage. I walk around and sing for two and a half hours and I walk off. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, so that's not going. I, I got to be famous enough that everyone else does everything for me and I just have to perform. Yeah, for sure. Like even, um, so, you know, I moved to Florida and I didn't play in a band. Actually, I haven't played in a band since, right? But um, probably like nine or 10 years ago, I started to feel like I wanted to to do something again. And at the time, I, you know, my main goal was I like we had made that EP, but we did it ourselves in in Mark's right. basement, right? And I just wanted to like record like a real album, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like in a real studio with a real producer. So I started, you know, messing around and writing some tunes and like going to like the coffee shop, you know, open mic slash, uh, um, you know, coffee shop bookings type of stuff, you know, singer songwriter, bring your guitar and just play your song sort of thing. And it, it was cool. Um, and, but the same problem, right? Like 
I don't know what it is. Maybe it's like just my ego and how fragile it is. But I, I like I don't like the feeling of that. Right. Like being in front of folks and like hoping they love what you do. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, it's bad when they do and it's bad when they don't. <laughs> Quite honestly, it leads to different demons. But um, but I did enjoy it for a while. I met a lot of cool people. And then eventually I was able to go and record something, which, you know, I really like. And um, that's a whole nother story. But like, I know you also got into other things as well, right? Like, um, if I remember correctly, you were writing musicals and doing some things with shows. How did that all come about? So I've always wanted to do a bigger project like a musical. Um, and I stopped and started a bunch of times. And mainly because I've always liked writing songs, I've always liked writing stories. And I'm like, yeah, I should just put them together. Um, and any time I started, I just never really had um, a concept that would lead to you know, a two hour musical. Mm-hmm. Not even mentioning the fact that I don't know how to write music. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that I don't know how to, to take sheet music and, and arrange things and, and uh, you know, add in uh, an orchestra i mean if i if i write a musical it's going to be, be on guitar mm-hmm. uh, but then uh in 2007 i think it was my wife and i went to see um american idiot the green day musical yeah and and i thought it was pretty bad like i liked the music i thought the production was great i thought it, the dancing was great i thought the orchestration was great but there was no story i'm like well they you know they probably should have thought about that when they did this i could do better than this i said to myself so i'm like oh let, let me try this and there's a line there, there's a, a song in um american idiot called uh, she's a rebel and i misheard the lyric as cinder rebel so i'm like oh they, that's a interesting concept like a like a punk rock cinderella so I started putting that together and it became more folky, but that became my first musical. It's called uh, Shiny Objects. Um, and it took me probably six or seven years to write it because I, again, just doing it all, all by myself. It wasn't really like a major project. Um, but the main plot of it was it, it was a like a, a modern day real life Cinderella story where it's a girl who's uh, mother passed away she's living with her evil stepfather and her mean stepsister um, and she kind of gets these hints um, from uh, a fairy godmother type person that leads her to uh, finding her real father uh, who, who she had never known um, and the, the the music was a lot more folkier because again it was just me on, on guitar um, mm-hmm. As far as production to that, it was I, I had a, a couple readings of it, and then I wound up having one decent staged reading. Um, but the problem was that the staged reading it was designed as that it was designed as hey, here's my show, here's where it is, giving me feedback. I actually got a, a ton of great feedback, um, so much feedback that I actually didn't know what to do with it all. Um, and we came, actually, you know, it was 2010 that I started writing it because it was, the, the stage reading was in 2017 because that was the last time I've actually touched the darn thing. Because <laughs> um, the, the feedback was kind of conflicting, right? It was like, hey, this is great. Um, 
I want to know more about this. Um, you know, this character, I, I didn't really understand why this happened here, but then someone else said, I don't understand why this other thing happened. And then I kind of got paralyzed into saying, well, I don't know where to start this. Because, um, you know, I do it by myself. I don't have anyone to bounce it off of. So that kind of stalled. Um, in the in the meantime, um, my daughter, her her dance school at the time, when they do um, a dance recital, um, you know, dance recital is it's in the '80s or some other kind of theme, but they like to do a whole show, a whole like production. Um, so they're working on one. They didn't like the way it was going, and I asked the studio director, "Hey, can I take a shot at this?" And she said, "Sure. Here's what my." nephew's been doing and he like had written like this original story so i took his original story and it was kind of really lousy and i wound up writing like a 35 page play out of it mm-hmm. um and from that that's what i've been doing the last like five their last five productions have been me writing a play but one of those um i actually turned into a, a musical on its own called it's like a Alice in Wonderland sequel called Saving Wonderland and it's about Alice's little sister and she goes into Wonderland and everything's all messed up and she has to try to figure out what's going on and how to fix it. Like it's designed to be a kid's musical. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, that I'm looking for feedback now for it. I'm hoping eventually maybe that a school could do it or that, you know, a theater school could do it or something. Um, uh, and then besides that, I kind of got fortunate and got hooked up with a guy who was writing a musical about Howard Hughes, um, something he'd been working on for like 20 years and his lyricist passed away and they got a new book writer and they pretty much rewrote the entire musical and needed a new lyricist. And we got hooked up through a a mutual acquaintance. Um, And this is a guy who actually has like the means to make a musical happen. I I have no money, you know, I can't. (laughs) get something produced but this guy actually is is he, he's a man of means um so something might actually happen with this um so that's what i've been working on uh, for the past year and then with that you know kind of contrasting what i said about shiny objects how it was all me i know when you bounce anything off of this is the opposite this it's a team it's me and the composer i mean we have a book writer, we have a musical director, and we have an actual director. And we've had in-person meetings and then since then we've had a couple Zoom meetings. But that one, it, it is interesting to see how the collaboration makes a difference. Like, I kind of feel for the book writer. And again, I'm kind of thinking about with, with uh, being in the band, how you, 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 you find out your role and you're like, okay, I'm the guitarist. I'm just going to be the guitarist here. I'm the lyricist. I'm just going to be the, I'm just going to be the lyricist. Um, the director keeps giving the book writer all these um, tasks and they're currently in the process of just about rewriting the whole thing <laughs> again, <laughs> um, which I can tell he's frustrated by it, but the ultimate goal, the ultimate end result, you hope is going to be uh, an excellent show. Um, I don't know how much you know about musicals or, or history of musicals, but um, one of my favorite story of, of a musical is Sondheim's um, Merrily We Roll Along. Um, 
I don't know. Do you know anything about that or the story of how that happened or? No, no, no. Tell us. So at the point that, that Sondheim wrote Murder Lieber World Long, he was already like famous, you know, multi Tony award winning, you know, everyone wanted to be in a Sondheim musical, uh, the kind that like, if it's a Sondheim musical, it's gone right to Broadway, you know, he's already big enough. Yeah. So they had this idea for musicals. Uh, they took this, uh, I think it was initially a play and it was about these um, like showbiz types who who start out, like the, the show goes backwards. So the show starts out when they're already famous, already have their show on Broadway and it works backwards um, until you're meeting them where they're just getting together and starting the show. That's kind of the, the gimmick of the show. So they turn it into a musical, spent, you know, a few years on it, as you do. It, it went through all the rights and rewrites and previews. And in the first preview, uh, it's got a terrible audience reaction. Again, this is already going through what we've already gone through with this Howard Hughes musical. Mm -hmm. Everyone getting together and meeting and revising and you, you think it's good and the audience hated it after the, the first preview. So they already had opening day on the books. So, so they had to basically take it, rewrite it in these few short weeks that they had before the, the opening day. And then it opened, and then it closed after like two weeks. Um, you know, got, you know, got panned. Today, however, people love it. It's, it's, it's become a musical that gets done a lot and that people, you know, know and like. But it's just kind of funny that that you, you take like the, the biggest composer and uh, and it was Hal Prince directed and Hal Prince, you know, he directed everything. Right. This, the biggest you know, composer and producer team and they, they wound up with a flop even after years of writing and rewriting. So that's kind of when I think about the Howard Hughes musical, I'm like, well, we don't want that to happen. <laughs> you know, we, we don't want to wind up, uh, if we ever get this thing on a stage with real people, that we think it's great, and people are like, yeah, I kind of don't get what's going on here. That's the real trick, right? And, it, you know, as you talk, I, I think of two, two big ideas that I think are really important. And the first is, like, to your point, like what you said about shiny objects is you got to a point and you didn't know what to do next, right? Like, right. and I got, I've gotten there before too, like that, that period when I got the bug again, quote unquote, and, and recorded that album. And I, you know, one of my goals was to get a show at this, it's just a local place, but it has really cool bands. It's called Skipper Smokehouse. And so I sent them my stuff and they invited me to like a Tuesday night showcase. You know how that goes, right? Like, and, yeah, yeah. uh, you know, for that reason and many others, I didn't get very many people out and, uh, you know, it was, it wasn't a great show, you know? And after that happened, I was just like, well, I wanted to play at Skipper's. Like, I don't know what the next thing is. And, and in fact, I don't know if I'm willing to put in the work for the next thing. Right. Cause that's really the point is I think there's two aspects that, that really, um, cause people to become, you know, famous or successful or however you want to say that for, for music. And the first is just a relentless, maniacal focus type, right? Like, like Bruce Springsteen comes to mind, like mm -hmm. in his mind, I'm sure he was always going to be a rock star. Right. And mm -hmm. that was, 
that was the vision, that was the mission, and that was he what he did every day in his life. And I just, I've never felt that, you know, for whatever reason. And then the second, I think, like you're saying, is just sometimes maybe a little bit of luck. I meet the right people at the right time, like you're talking about this Howard Hughes uh, musical. And who knows what happens, right? But, yeah. um, but uh, you know, getting the right team together probably is a really big part of it, too. Um, so that's a challenge. And then third, and, and I, I'm interested to hear what you think about this, is like what you're talking about, that intersection of art with business, right? So, hey, we may love it, and that should be the point of doing this, is to create something we love, but then you gotta sell it, right? And um, that's, that's what the preview is, is can we sell this thing? Um, how do you feel about that? Like, do you like that, that sort of process where the art becomes business? Is it, you know, like, What's that like, I guess, is what I'm asking. It, it, it's not been fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I, the, the, the conclusion I reached with Shiny Objects and also with Saving Wonderland is nobody cares about this as much as I do. Mm-hmm. And no, nobody cares about the show, and I can't make them care. Um, I, with Saving Wonderland, um, I had a reading, I got like four actors together, we read through it, I recorded the whole thing, and I reached out to a good number of people, people who, when I've kind of posted about it, they've been like, oh yeah, that sounds great, I'd like to hear it. Like, oh great, here's a link to the recording. And even one guy who's like a, you know, a local, he, he's more than a local actor, he's you know, actor, director, kind of everything. And I even said, you know, I know you're kind of out of work now, I'll pay you to listen to this and critique it. I said, and he said, great, sure, I'll be happy to do it and send him the link and, and nothing. So I don't know how, <laughs> you know, I, I, I just, it, it's hard to convince someone else to spend an hour or two hours listening to your stuff and I get that. Um, so I don't know how to convince someone to, to love it as much as I do. And I think when it comes down to the business and I haven't reached that level of success where the business and really mattered, you know, yeah. um, probably the most people that the Phoenix I've ever had out to a gig was maybe 40 or 50 people. Um, and that was, to me, that was phenomenal. Like, like to have one person in the audience who isn't friend or family who just came to see the band. It's like, to me, that's, that, that, that's success that someone, there were a few people who just liked the band. And that, to me, that, that was that was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, exactly, for sure. I remember us playing some restaurant somewhere. I don't even remember where it was, but it was, like you said, there weren't a lot of people there. But there was one dude while we were playing, and I saw him, and he was, like, really into it. And I'm like, this is worth it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, just to connect with somebody on a level like that is 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 definitely great and but to your point earlier right like all the work that goes into that you know it's it's really challenging and like for me i you know like i said i've gotten to points where i'm just like you know i i feel like trying something else you know or or this isn't as important to me as it once was you know and like this podcast is sort of similar like i i've always wanted to do something like this and it's been fun so far but you know getting a hundred two hundred a thousand people to listen i have no earthly idea how to do that you know and i'm not sure i ever will you know so it's just uh it's an interesting challenge so where do you go from here on the uh howard hughes musical what's next 
um, well, if there hadn't been a COVID and everything hadn't shut down, the goal was that by September we would have had um, a staged reading. Like uh, the composer slash uh, benefactor um, had some connections in a few theaters and, and we were hoping to get that together. Um, turns out probably to be a blessing in disguise because if we had done that, we wouldn't have had the opportunity to go through the, go through the rewrite that we're going through now, which I think is going to make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the next step would be to get the show in front of actual producers who can really get it in front of an audience, you know, get, um, you know, a half dozen actors, um, in a room, you know, there, there, there's something, um, uh, especially with, with, um, with, uh, the stage actors guild with the union, um, it's called a, a 29 hour show. So it's basically, if you can, there, there's different rules as far as like union rules. If you can do a show, including rehearsal and everything, um, and like all performances, so it totals 29 or, or less hours. In a week? Yeah, just, just total, you know? Okay. So, uh, there's a a um, theater company in Philadelphia that does all musicals. They're called Eleventh Hour, and they started doing that more for budget reasons. They they used to do a few like full productions. They started doing th- just these concerts because they knew they could. Um, and and I don't know if the twenty nine hours includes somebody at home listening to and practicing. Probably not. Probably just includes the rehearsal time and the show time. Um, but they started doing that where they would have like three shows that would be you know nine hours and they could, they could spend 20 hours doing a rehearsing and uh you know the, all the other blocking and tech and all that stuff um so i think that's kind of the goal with howard is to get it to that point that we could do a 29 hour show um have a few performances um and then hopefully get the right people in the room to be able to take it to the next level, take it to you know, a decent off-Broadway theater. There's a couple of theaters in Bucks County who the composer, the composer knows pretty well. That's really cool. Yeah, I wanted to ask you more about that because, um, you know, that old uh, <laughs> Roger Waters or John Mayer, like, you know, what would be, in my opinion, something I would do and enjoy would be just writing lyrics for folks or, or something like that. Like that sounds like a lot of fun to me. Like I've always sort of wanted to do that, but it, it sounds yeah. like, what's that? I was going to say, yeah. Like I, I never fancied myself as a lyricist um, only like he, when he reached out to me um, out of the blue, I'm like, yeah, I guess I could, I mean, I'm right there. So I'd like it. I'm good at it. I don't know a lot about Howard Hughes for sure. <laughs> for sure. I'll take on, the challenge and uh actually got a, a couple books that that sondheim wrote on lyrics because uh, you know, his the first shows he ever did uh, he just wrote the lyrics for west side music and gypsy um, yeah. so it was interesting to kind of take that perspective and again take a step back and it's really hard to um to let go of the instinct to write the songs, to write the music. And there have been times where I've met with the producer and I've done some with lyrics. So like, well, here's a lyric, but this lyric is going to change the music. 
and sometimes it's been okay and sometimes he's reworked the my lyrics into the existing music yeah yeah and i would presume there were lyrics already is that true or, or yeah were you okay. so there were and at first it was like okay i'll just have to rewrite these couple songs and i would say at this point with all the other rewrites i've probably rewritten about you know 70 percent of the lyrics that were there are now mine mm-hmm. and then we've also added four or five net new songs so those are all mine yeah yeah i i think that would be even, maybe even be more challenging right like to start with something that's already written and say this doesn't work can you fix it <laughs> Is that true, or do you find it's it's been easier that way? It, it's been challenging. It's also been nice to have that template hmm. to come in with, because the, the guy who, the uh, gentleman who passed away, who wrote the lyrics, wrote the lyrics before, he was they, they were good. Like there's certainly nothing wrong with his lyrics at all. Um, so I was able to kind of use his style, um, you know, kind of the the language of it's a very old fashioned sounding musical Mm -hmm. because it really, it takes place in like the forties through the sixties, most of it, um, or the thirties. Um, so it it sounds old fashioned. So I had to kind of work the language in there. So it's good to to have what he had, um, to start with. Um, and then there are some other lyrics that were written that the book writer had written just to try to fit with the new story. And those, uh, were they were more like placeholders. They weren't really even templates. Those I was able just to to use just to get the the idea of what was needed. Um, but yeah, it, it's almost like like having that template and having that limitation makes it uh, makes you more creative because you have to think of ways to to fit in the in this expectation. You know, like, like what I wrote for. Power was way different lyrics than what I wrote for Saving Wonderland, which is way different lyrics than what I wrote for, for Shiny Objects. Yeah, for sure. Like I always, uh, I always equate that to pop music. You know, pop music gets a bad uh, rap, and you know, for some, in some ways, for good reason, right? But I think it was John Lennon that said something like, "Hey, man, like it, you know, it's a four-minute song, right? It's right. like starting with a frame." You know what I mean? Like you can't just paint whatever the hell you want in whatever size you want. Like you have the size of the canvas and you got to make something good out of it. And so like, yeah, I mean, like to me, like when you get a pop song, right? Like it's just, you know, everybody wants to listen to it a million times, you know? And, uh, but that frame, that sort of, you know, um, there's a better word for it and it's escaping me like you know like a sculpture right there's only so many things you can do with a block of of, of clay <laughs> you know yeah. or stone or what have you like I think there's something to be said for limits in art you know yeah definitely and um, especially when it comes to musicals there's you have to fit it inside this, this bigger thing yeah um, I can always tell when a song is put into a musical that was not intended for the musical. Like when you have a song like, um, I don't know, if, are you familiar with, with Family Opera? Yeah. Okay, so Think of Me um, really has nothing at all to do with the story of, of Family Opera. Hmm. And it was written at, as an audition, like a, 
that they needed a new lyricist. Angelo and Weber said, okay, here's some music. I'm going to put this music out there. Whoever can come up with the best lyrics, they get the job. And I, I did Don Black, the lyricist, or Charles Hart, I forget which one. But they wrote lyrics to Think of Me, and uh, they got the job, and that song is in the show, but really has nothing to do with the story. Um, yeah, and it's at odds with most of the story, too, right? It's just this pretty little number about being in love. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's, you know, because the family opera has uh, the shows within the show. There's a couple of yeah. that the, the characters are in, so that, that was just a show within the show. Um, but typically for a musical, there's there's rules. Like, you want the song to reflect the character and that the end of the song needs to show that the character is in a different place than they were in the beginning of the song. Um, you know, the whole point of a song is that it's something that the person can't say, therefore they need to sing it. Otherwise, mm. it's just corny. Um, you know, there's expectations, like every musical tends to have a uh, an I wish song, like this is, you know, usually the second or third song, it's going to be the, where the person is kind of announcing their intentions that is going to carry them, them through the entire show. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm thinking of Joseph Campbell right now, to be honest with you, with two things that you said, and I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's the guy that wrote uh, A Hero's Journey and uh, Mask with a Thousand Faces, mythology guy, uh, bringing together stories, right? And he wrote... Uh, the hero's journey is like 17 steps that a hero takes in both myth stories. And, and, yeah. um, and uh, what's his name? George Lucas used it to write Star Wars. Like that's the framework of it is, is those 17 steps. And one of them early on is, you know, presented with a challenge, wants to get out of whatever world they're in and find something new, right? Um, so it makes me think of that. And then he also said something like, you know, poetry, which could be music too, in my opinion, is is not what is said, but a way of saying it. Right? right to your point, like there's a reason why you would put it to music, and there's an emotional reaction involved, hopefully, and um, you know, it's just a different language than speaking, and it can be extremely powerful. Like, you know, it it can be you know, the best representation, in my opinion, of what heaven might be if you hear a really beautiful piece of music. Yeah. It's, it can take you there and other places as well, obviously. So, yeah, I get your point. Like, it... it um, and, oh, and the other thing I wanted to say was um, I'm with you, too, like, putting music <laughs> into a play for the point of it. Like, to me, that's, e like, even bigger than that. Like, I see... And I don't, I don't see a lot of musicals, right? So I'm sort of speaking out of turn, to be honest with you. But, like, like you said, like, the, the Green Day musical, you know, the Billy Joel musical, <clears throat> the Beetlejuice music. Like, it seems like it, like theater in a lot of ways has become very commercialized just like movies and some other art forms have but like when they throw together this you know we're going to use this guy's music and make a musical out of it it just seems like another way to repackage you know creative works to sell it to you again and I, I've <laughs> yeah, I almost looked down my nose at it, you know, and I recognize that in myself, but it, it bothers me. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not at all a fan of, of the jukebox musical where they just take existing songs and put them together. Um, I will say Beetlejuice is not 
you know, it, it, it's, it's its own musical. Um, if, if you find the soundtrack, it's actually really good. And, and the first, it, it kind of starts out right away with like a ballad. And then the guy playing Beetlejuice comes on and says, wow, this is quite a departure from the source material. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they play with it and they kind of right away make sure you know this is going to be different from the movie and we're not just repackaging the movie. Um, well, that's good. Yeah, that's that gives me hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, although, I, I mean, I haven't seen it. Nobody saw it because it didn't happen. Um, but there's a Bob Dylan musical. Now, there was a Bob Dylan musical a few years ago. I think it was just called The Times They Are Changing and it never went anywhere. But then there's a new one called The Girl from North Country, which got really good reviews and apparently took his existing songs and just totally reframed them in a story, but in a way that made it work and also reorchestrated them in like a, like a bluegrass kind of feel. Mm. Normally I would totally be anti and, and stay away from something like that, but that one I'm kind of curious about. Um, well, yeah, I think that's, I mean, like, like I said, in the beginning, like I haven't seen him, right? So I could be 100% wrong. And I, that gives me hope again that Beetlejuice is like, making fun of itself for in some way or you know, yeah. breaking the fourth wall in that way. I think that could be cool and clever. Like I think you'd still make a great musical doing that. It just feels so commercial and like you look at Disney, right? Like they're doing that in, in plays and then they're like taking their old movies and turning them into live action. And you know, here's the same movie again, just, you know, <laughs> yeah. re, redone. And, uh, and I get it. I mean, I don't blame them. They're making tons of money doing it, but I just like, it bothers me, you know, like culturally, like, you know, and I know there's, there's the business aspect to it. It's like, dude, if I take Lion King and I remake it, I'm, I'm selling a billion dollars. You know what I mean? Like, but it feels, it feels like they've run out of ideas. Yeah, there's no creativity. Like nobody's taking chances. Nobody's doing something new. Like, and you could you could push that. I know I've kind of flipped it to movies because I don't know as much about theater, quite honestly, as I should. But, um, but you know, it, yeah, it just seems like there there isn't a, a uh, an appetite to bring new ideas and new creativity, and you know, it just seems like the art form is sort of dying. My my biggest problem with the, the Disney remakes is that the ones I've seen, there was nothing wrong with the original. Like they've redone the one I saw, I saw Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King. Um, they were not improvements. Yeah. The original. Um, Lion King, you know, it was still animated. It was just all CGI. Just all, you know, obviously these animals weren't really talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, weren't, they weren't really singing. It, it didn't need to be done. You know, the Beauty and the Beast remake was not better than the, the animated one. The Cinderella one, again, you know, it didn't really improve upon it. So I didn't really see the, the need for it. Um, the Mulan one, I'm curious about, because that one, they've taken, they, they've, de they, they've undisneyified it for the live action movie. They took out the cartoon dragon, they took out there's like a, a love story aspect that really didn't belong. They took that out and it's really just about uh, the actual story of the real Mulan. So that I'm curious to see if they did better with that. Have you, uh, have you bought it for $40 on uh, <laughs> no. Apple TV? <laughs> uh, and I'm hoping that I'll just wait till it comes out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. like we, we have Disney Plus, 
Um, and I was actually, I was pretty annoyed when they, when they did that. I'm like, yeah, I get it that, that if my wife and daughter and I went to see it in the theaters, we would pay 10 to $15 a ticket, but we're in the theater. I don't have a 30 foot wide screen and surround sound and popcorn in my house. Right. You know? Yeah, my wife was the same. She was like, dude, we spend much more than that if we went to see it. I'm like, yeah, but we're not, you know, there's no rent involved. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. There's no big, big picture like you said. I'm not, you know, buying, you know, $11 popcorn. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it, it was, uh, I did watch it on purpose just because of that, you know. Yeah, it'll, it'll be out. It'll be available at some point. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And then all the the political stuff that's gotten involved in that too, right? Like where it was filmed and... and oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Disney got um, hammered on that a little bit. <laughs> and you had mentioned uh, COVID had, had interrupted uh, sort of the plan for the Howard Hughes musical. Does that musical have a title yet or no? Um, I think the title now is Howard and American Life. Mm. It's gone back and forth with a few things. At one point it was called Flight. At one point, it was just called Howard. At one point, it was called Howard and American Musical. Then I had to point out that the the full title of Hamilton is Hamilton and American Musical. So they kind of took that out. <laughs> um, then Disney went and did a, a documentary on on Howard Ashman, the, the lyricist for like Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid. Yeah, that's called Howard. So I don't know if that means we'll both we'll to reconsider the the title again. Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just uh, I kept calling it the Howard Hughes musical. No, that's, that's what we call it too. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> uh, but apparently, so, uh, yeah, go ahead. Dealing with uh, the the lawyers, there are rules about what you can and can't say. Like you can't actually use the name Howard Hughes in the title of the show. Otherwise, you would just call it the Howard Hughes musical or something. But you can't use his name. You can't use like his actual likeness in. Um, you know, if it ever gets to the point that it's there's you know advertising we can't use his likeness in advertisements there are there are definitely rules of what we can and can't do and one of them is we can't use howard hughes's name in the title we can use it all three of the show it's about him but that's not in the title which is interesting that is interesting presumably you could pay his estate to do so but that's the that's the hangout right yeah i mean or get them on board they'd have to be on board for the whole show i would presume yeah, I'm not quite sure what the where the line is drawn because I think it was, if it was just about money, then we might be able to do that. Unless it's about a whole lot of money, I'm just, I'm just not sure. Yeah, um, yeah where, where the hangup was. Um, funny story about about copyrights. Getting back to the uh, me writing the shows for the my daughter's um, dance school. Mm -hmm. um, before I started writing, part of why they started to have somebody writing original stuff um, was they, they wanted to do a show based on Milan Rouge. Uh, mm -hmm. So they called it Milan Rouge and they had Milan Rouge and some, and yeah, this is like a, a tiny, tiny dance studio in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania, you know, with like, you know, 50 kids in it or whatever. Somebody from the Milan Rouge estate got word of it and they sent him a cease and desist order. <laughs> <laughs> so they they went up calling it a night in Paris. They couldn't say Milan Rouge, you know. It's funny that same thing happened to me uh, when I was at Villanova. So, you know, there was like a theater department, and you know, they did really 
awesome productions, but there was also this group called Student Musical Theater. And it was just, you know, run by students and you could just audition and do, a sh- you know, do shows with them. And uh, they did, they used to do in the fall, they called it mini musicals. And it was just like a, it was a, like a, I want to say it was a two hour show. There were four musicals. So each was about a half hour and it was just like a review, you know, just did some of the songs. Well, they never like, it's just kids, you know, 18 to 20 year old kids just putting together something. They never got the rights to any of it. And uh, I think it was my sophomore year. Like somebody, I forget the exact story, but same thing. Like somebody figured it out, you know, I forget the name of the places that like you have to buy the rights to do a show, but somebody was a lawyer who knew those folks or worked for those folks. And same thing, we got a letter and like mid-production had to say, oh shit, we're not doing that. Let's do Bye Bye Birdie because <laughs> it's cheap. <laughs> and and uh, it was a big deal because like you got, you know, the, I think one of the reasons they did it is to have more people participate, right? So like if you just do one show, you know, whatever the cast is, 10, 20, 30 folks. Um, so you could get, you know, 50, 60 people on stage doing something. So it was like, it was a big deal because not only did we have to change what we were doing like mid rehearsal, but then, oh, we don't have a part for half the people, you know what yeah. I mean? So it was, it was a big deal, but same thing. Like we didn't know what we were doing and, you know, certainly weren't making any money on it, but, um, yeah, copyright's a, uh, an important thing. I mean, I get it now. Like now that I've written stuff, like if somebody was just, actually, I'd love it. People would use my music. Please do. <laughs> right. Like somewhere, yeah. but I get it now. Like, it, you know, artists get, especially in the music business, they get screwed every day, you know? Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I, I get why people are, are so protective of, of their rights. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. Something I was going to say about that, now I'm blanking on what it was, um, having to do with the, uh, on the topic of using stuff on stage, uh, it'll, it'll come to me, but it was, it was relevant. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Getting old. <laughs> it's happening, man. <laughs> I uh, I feel it every day, like creaks in the body, and you know stuff I, you know, find challenging now that never did when I was younger. Um, you had mentioned though. I, I'm curious that most of the folks I talk to are from around the country. Obviously, I haven't been to Philly in a while. What's been? You mentioned uh, COVID, you know, interrupting your process a bit with with the musical. Like, what's the general like? How's How's the experience of COVID been in uh, in Philly, and you know, how's that been for your family or or anything like that? So it's hit us pretty good, um, mainly because my wife does um, public relations for a bunch of small theaters, and mm-hmm. all they're all they're all shut down. Um, some of them have managed to do some things, some virtual things. Um, one of them is. Uh, um, they also have a restaurant on their site, so they've wound up still being able to, to promote the restaurant. Um, some of them, you know, still manage to keep themselves uh, somewhat relevant. Maybe they, you know, change, uh, have a big staffing change, like stuff they still need my wife for. But for the most part, there's there's been no shows. It's been very uncertain. They haven't been able to, you know, say, okay, here's what we're doing for our. 2020 to 2021 season. Um, the uh, as far as me, I, I work for a hospital, um, 
So I, I do, uh, um, I work for the medical record software so that it's totally remote. It's, you know, since middle of March, it's been remote and it's been fine. Um, so I'm still employed. Um, I know people are frustrated with how Philadelphia city has handled COVID because the, uh, the mayor has a couple of times said, okay, we're going to open restaurants on such and such day. And then a couple of days before that day, he says, Oh no, never mind. I'm sure not never mind, but you know, sorry, we, we can't open yet. And I know that pissed off a lot of restaurant owners because they had to get their staff ready. They had to buy food and equipment and everything. Um, I think they finally reopened again, but the rules are weird. Like there's restaurants that are open, but not bars. So if it's going to be a bar, then you have to also serve food. So a bar might be like, okay, we're going to provide hot dogs <laughs> just to have food, just so we can, we can open. Um, but I know that a lot of businesses were, were hit hard, um, you know, through that. Um, we live in Montgomery County. We're out in King of Prussia, um, which uh, is known for its mall. So the mall was closed for a while. Um, that reopened and it seemed like it was going to be like a gradual reopening. I think it's just fully open now. Um, and my daughter is uh, doing virtual school. So in Pennsylvania and our area, the schools are still virtual. Um, it wasn't that much different for her because she changed last year to go into a cyber charter anyway. So she, uh, she, she dances. Like I, I said before, she goes to dance school, but she also, her regular school is a performing arts school and it's half performing arts and half academics. So the performing arts this year in sixth grade, they were all in person. And then in March, they all moved to virtual, which is, was, was a challenge. Um, but her academics, her math and English and all, that was all already virtual. So she's already used to that. She changed schools. She went from being in a cyber charter to a different charter school this year, hoping that she would then get to finally be in person because she, she really missed being in person and you know being there with, with kids. Uh, but they're all virtual. So, you know, alas. Yeah, that's uh, that's been quite an experience, I know, for a lot of people. Now, you, let me make sure I understood that. Before COVID, she was like half virtual and half uh, at school. But the, that, when she was at school, it was for the performing arts piece. Is that do I have that right? Correct. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's a that's an easier transition, I would assume. But like, she's missing out on all that performing arts stuff now, right? Like, you can't dance virtually, <laughs> or you yeah, can, but it's they, not they the do. Same. They they dance on yeah. Zoom. We have um, like a a plywood board for tap dancing. She has a little like a two foot diameter, like round thing, which kind of emulates a, a like a it's a different texture than the rest of the floor. So more for dancing. Mm-hmm. Our basement is already like laminate, so it's already like it's not carpeted, so she can dance. Um, so yeah, now she's been learning to dance virtually. Her other dance school, so she left the one in Bridgeport where I was writing the shows for. I'm still writing the shows for, even though she's not there, <laughs> um, just because I can't say no, and they ask me, and I'm like, sure, why not? <laughs> um, that's that's another story. <laughs> But uh, her other dance school is in person. Like they, 
gave her the choice of being in person or being virtual. Um, having said that, we did have a bit of a scare last week. My wife got sick um, and she has like chronic asthma and allergies and a few times a year that goes from allergies to being bronchitis or something else that's an actual infection. And now when that happens, it's not just, hey, you have an infection, do what you gotta do. It's okay, that's, you know, that's, we're, we're worried that it's something else. So my daughter had to, we all had to kind of quarantine for a few extra days till my wife got the test. She got the test and she's negative. Um, but my daughter had to miss her other dance classes while we waited for, for all that to go down. Yeah. yeah. I've seen it from, from all angles. Yeah, for sure. We thank God, you know, knock on wood, we haven't yep. um, we haven't uh, really been sick. I think since it started, you know, COVID or otherwise. But I know it's affecting so many people, and it's a really hard problem. Like I don't even sometimes I don't even know what to think. You know, like yeah, I don't think there's an answer, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I go, I go back and forth about it. Um, on the one hand, I'm like you know. Uh, maybe like uh, you. I listened to your um, your debate recap, and you mentioned about Sweden, and I'm like, what what Sweden did? I don't even know if it was so much the herd immunity, but they they did protect their vulnerable population. Um, they still had people in masks. They, they just didn't close anything down. Yeah, they still had a lot of deaths. I, I honestly haven't looked lately what the numbers are, but. Um, you know, I don't know if that's the answer. And like you, you mentioned about Spain, they went down. Now they went way back up. Um, and that was presumably, again, after quarantining and after doing all the right, all the right things. Um, and maybe part of me is like, well, maybe the answer is that we just know this is going to be around and people are going to get sick. Um, but then it's hard for me to say that because my wife is in the vulnerable population. Yeah, I, I totally. I mean, I understand where you're coming from, and like, I don't think I know. Like, I want to say that clearly, right? Um, and uh, but it, you just see different things. Um, and like, I read something I forget who and where, but it was like we just went straight to lockdown, which was what China did, right? Mm -hmm. And there's not a lot of science on a lockdown, like, and there was no, <laughs> there was no like, okay, is this the right? path you know we just did it and maybe it is like don't get me wrong but um it just seems like regardless of lockdown or no or um it, that that the results don't change all that much uh and uh certainly you know, like like you said i mean sweden protect the vulnerable everybody wears masks social distance like i'm sure they did a lot better at masks and social distance than well at least i saw here in florida um, but you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, we, we did all these things and maybe they had an impact and maybe they didn't and nobody quite knows, but we all beat up each other about it. Right. right? <laughs> like as soon and from both, from all angles. Right. I, I, and I find myself doing this too. Like, it's just totally natural, but like, well, this guy didn't do that or this leader didn't do this. And, and you know, yeah, you're probably right. Like everybody fuck this up to be honest with you but part of the reason is because nobody quite knows what you you know what works and i think yeah. we're still figuring that out and then you know 
it becomes all political and it's just painful you know I don't yeah know. i mean it's it's new it's a novel virus mm-hmm. it, it, it does stink um that yeah we just and and like it, it's hard to say what the what the right answer is and what the rules are like you know i don't even know if there's really a country that you can point to and say ah here's the country that did it right yeah. i think even even you know italy i know they shut down i think they i can i'm gonna kind of pop up the the numbers while we're looking but i think they went back up not probably not terribly but um yeah yeah and it's like yeah i mean and i don't know for sure but i think i heard they're coming back sort of like spain with with a lot of new cases per capita right there's no numbers comparison to the u.s because we have such a bigger population but when you look at per capita yeah, they're coming looking, back a lot. I'm looking at their graph right now. It's definitely, it's it's very much a, a curve that's going back up. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, because, I mean, the, the truth is we don't have a cure, right? We don't have a vaccine. And so the only way to stop its spread is to, well, actually, I don't even know the answer to that. Presumably, the way to stop its spread is you quarantine people that are sick, right? Like, that's the old method. Right. Um, but we haven't been able to do that. It, it would appear. And well, I think because they, they don't know. Now it's like, well, you cannot be sick. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You you spread it before you know you're sick. Yeah. But we quarantined everybody too. Like I remember a couple of months ago, there were a lot of you know. I read a few places where people were like, "Let's do a hundred percent lockdown. Let's just lock down everything." You know, so nobody interacts with anybody right. for a few weeks. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that was ever tried anywhere, but maybe that works. I don't know. But there's well, so that, many. Yeah, go ahead. Well, that was a presumption in the very beginning, right? Because I, mm-hmm. I remember the, the moment that this all went down, that's, again, getting back to the Howard Hughes thing, it was a, we had an in-person, it was middle of March, it was March 11th, and we had planned this, like, two-day intensive meeting. Before that, we'd only ever met for like three or four hours at a time, you know, once a month in New York and this thing. And then like, sort of, here, here, we're going to get the whole group together. We're going to meet for two full days and like just do this for two days. Um, the director um, who lived in Westchester, New York, said, hey, guess what? My husband works with someone who is in contact with someone who's positive. So just to be safe, I'm going to stay home. So we had her on Skype. And of course, we're thinking, wow, that's a little overcautious of you. Yeah. Um, but sure, that I, we understand because the composer himself is like, he's an elderly man and we didn't want to put anyone at risk. But the rest of us were there. Um, on day two of our little meeting, the music director who was with us, he's the an assistant conductor on the musical Chicago. You know, on, on day one, we're, we're almost like joking about it. We're saying, hey, we're meeting, so we wear a mask. You know, we didn't shake hands. We like elbow bumps, we kind of laughed about it. Mm-hmm. The next day, he got a text, Broadway's closed, like that fast. You know, and then from then, like I went into work, um, you know, the next, you know, the, the following Monday, and my wife had been sick and then she went to her doctor and I said, hey, we, you need a test. So I had to tell work, um, hey, my wife, you know, she's going to get a COVID test. And my, 
boss at the time, she she said, "Okay, get the fuck out." Like that's what she actually said. <laughs> She's like, "Okay, get, yeah, go the fuck home." And uh, and then the next day, everybody in my entire office was home. Yeah, it's like a movie almost, right? Like a like a zombie outbreak, sort of the the, the opening uh, act. And uh, it's funny, I had a similar experience. Uh, so I'm in sales and I travel for work. And so all through the first you know few months in in 2020, traveling for work, things are starting to get real. And that same week that you're talking about, uh, I had a um, I had a meeting. I think it was in Wisconsin. It was somewhere in the upper Midwest. I I don't quite remember. But like it was just weird because I had been going to like New York and some other places and people were already, like you said, like doing the elbow thing and that sort of thing. And it just struck me that like people at this particular office shook hands, you know, it's like, yeah. eh, should we be doing this? And then at the same time, um, my wife was born in Florida. My son's born in Florida. They've never been to New York City. And the fo- that following week uh, was his spring break and we had a trip planned to go mm. to New York just to do the touristy stuff. And literally, like this, we canceled it the Sunday before. So whatever that was, like March eighth, ninth, somewhere in there. And it was still at that point. I was like, man, I still don't know what to do. Maybe we should go. You know, maybe it'll be yeah. everybody will get scared and it'll be great because I hate crowds and waiting in line everywhere. You know, and we were gonna go to the World Trade Center and all these things, right? So it's like maybe it'll be great. You know, it'll be like a ghost town and we can just <laughs> get everything done. You know, mm-hmm. but and so we went back and forth and even when we canceled it, I was kind of like, I don't, I'm not sure I feel good about this. You know, yeah. And uh, it was so lucky, like you said, like you know, we were supposed to fly there on Saturday and I think it was the next, you know next day like the whole place shut down and i wonder if we might not still be there you know (laughs) we have a a partner at work and and um you know we just had a couple of meetings i haven't talked to him in months but like a few weeks after that he was in florida because he'd been in his parents even though he lives in new york and he couldn't get home you know and he's got uh kids he was there on vacation he's like we're not bringing our kids home so he's like living with his parents in florida you know so yeah, I mean, like, it's it's pretty crazy how fast that all happened. But the, and, the, yeah, yeah, the presumption, the presumption back when that happened was okay. This will last two weeks, you know. If we, if everybody goes in their house and sits there for two weeks, based on what we know, if this thing has a fourteen day incubation period or whatever, that we will know at the end of those fourteen days who's sick. We take care of them. Who's not? They stay home until everyone else is sick. That never really happened. Like I think I I just think we don't know enough about this virus for that to have ever been uh, effective. But we don't know anything else. Yeah, yeah, and that's what's frustrating is you know like you said at that point it was like well look, we'll do this for two we- weeks we'll flatten the curve everything will be fine you know and here we are what is it it's October so that's I'm seven months later yeah. <laughs> and we still don't know what the hell's going on, when it ends, how to prevent it from spreading. Like none of that is is figured out, in my opinion. You know, I haven't seen it. And uh, man, what a crazy year! I mean, I just think everybody's like ready to ready to pack her in. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. call me in twenty twenty one. You know, <laughs> but you know, on January first, twenty twenty one, all these problems will still be there. I know. It won't be like, woohoo, the virus is gone. 2021. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's I mean, no end in sight. I, you know I think I mean? that's. Uh, I think right, that's right. Okay, sorry. 
I was just going to say, yeah, there's no one in sight. I mean, and that's a big thing psychologically. If people know the plan and they know, you know, when it ends and, you know, here's what you need to do and here's why you need to do it and here's where we're going, you know, that's that's a great conversation. People can put up with a lot of bullshit for that, right? As long as it's true and valid and they believe it's it's moving forward. But in this space where we're at, where nobody knows what's going on, everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else, you know, in some ways we're rightfully so. Uh, but you like you, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, and that's really bad for the psyche, and is really bad for sort of the the zeitgeist, if you will. Like it's, I mean, you and you look around and you see it. Like we have problems in this country, but people are going a little crazy, and and part of that reason, I think for sure, is just being locked up for seven months. Yeah, yeah. Getting back to to theater, some of the stuff I was is working on there's some theaters that have been pretty innovative, like more so than just saying, okay, we're going to put the show on zoom. Um, there's one theater that's doing, they're doing a show that it's like, it's like a seven minute show and you walk past, I think it takes place in a house, but you're outside the house. You have like disposable cheap headphones and you see, so it's almost like a radio play but you see action happening in shadows in the house. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's like a, like a personal play just for you. And then they're also doing a show that's, it takes place in like a parking lot and people park their cars in a circle around the action. And I think the, I think it, the action is like relevant to a drive-in or something, you know, what, mm-hmm. what the play is about. So they're, they're trying to see, okay, how can we, take the situation where you can't have theater and people in theaters and come up with, with new theater art. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I mean, um, I didn't tell you, but uh, about six years ago, I want to say, I think it was six. I've always, I, the, my favorite musical is, is Les Mis. Like everybody loves that musical, but I think it's brilliant. And uh, one of the things on my list of things to do before the journey's over is wants to be in that in that play and I just happened to see an audition notice for it I don't even remember where or why and I went and audition I was in it and uh oh, really great oh, right. yeah. <laughs> uh you know just community theater right yeah. but it's a great so. little theater and man there was such an awesome cast because of course everybody wants to be in that show right like you don't see it very often at the community level or I haven't <laughs> And so I did that, and then uh, maybe a year ago, yeah, last year, one of the one of the ladies that was in it, like they needed some folks for Titanic, um, like they didn't have enough men in in the play for whatever reason. So I ended up doing that too, um, and that's all to say, like I've just met some awesome people and sort of know people in, involved in theater around here a little bit, uh, even though you know I'm not really a theater guy. But um, they were great experiences and a lot of fun. But, um, you know, I've been able to see what they're doing. And like you said, you know, they um, uh, there was one where like it uh, I think this was actually at the main like super professional theater in Tampa Bay Performing Arts Center um, where they get, you know, the, the touring shows and all that. I think they did a one where it was like you could sit outside and they had a projection of the show, you know, so oh. you can watch it while you were outside. And uh, I know some of the other smaller theaters have like, you know, torn out their seats and they put in tables that are separated so people mm. can come in and see the shows. And 
you know, things along those lines, which I think is great to your point. I mean, like I can't imagine if my livelihood, if I was a small business owner or a theater owner or a person that makes their living in those sorts of things, like it must be very, very tough right now. I mean, not only financially, but creatively and professionally and all of those things. Like it must just be horrible, you know, to your point, like, my job barely changed. I just don't travel anymore. You know, I can work from home and it's been brilliant. And, you know, I'm so lucky to have that. And I can't imagine what it's like for folks that that isn't the case, you know? Yeah, I, I am kind of dying to get back in the office, though. <laughs> um, I mean, well, that, I, I live pretty far. Like, I, I live in King of Prussia. I have like an hour commute and I miss that commute. You know, it, it I got really tired of the commute, but I miss having that hour before work and after work to decompress. Um, Cause now I have, we have two cats so they're always in and out of here. You know, my, my kid interruptions, you know, dis- distractions. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's weird for me because I've been doing, I've been a remote worker since 20, 2006. So 14 years. And it's mostly just, like I said, cause I'm in sales and so you know, most of the work is going to see folks and visiting with them. So a lot of travel, but, um, but yeah, from that perspective, it was kind of weird. Like when everything shut down and people were doing the remote thing for the first time, I kind of felt like, you know, the expert, well, let me show you how it's done. Right. (laughs) I've been doing this for years. Uh, but it's kind of neat to see how much, um, folks have been able to figure that out. Um, I think you're right. I think there is a space missing, uh, in an office environment. I mean, like, even though I was remote in the, you know, two or three times a year, I would go to our home office. You feel like you just get all this stuff done that would have taken you twice as long as you weren't there. If you weren't there just by being able to go and see people and talk to them and all that sort of thing. Um, so it's, it's a different dichotomy for sure. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think, uh, the entire country is ready to just go back to work. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, that feels like a place where we can move on to my favorite part of the podcast. And hopefully you've listened before and know what's coming. I think did you I ever watch. Did you ever watch Inside the Actor Studio? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I love that show. So hopefully it's cool. I'm going to ask you the 10 questions again. Everybody should know by now. This comes from a French series, Bouillon de Couture. Uh, but it's James Lipton, who was a I think is. Do I have this confused? Didn't he work with Sondheim on Into the Woods? Or is that a different? No, that's that's uh, James Lapine. Oh, okay, it's a different Pine. The Pine. Okay, close. I knew you'd know. And oh, that reminds me, I did want to ask you. Uh, so, you know, I'm no musical theater expert, right? But one of my, I do love Stephen Sondheim, and uh, there's a line that I think is the most beautiful line ever written. <laughs> and it's just because it's super clever. It's in Into the Woods, and it's uh, when uh, Jack's mom is singing about the cow, mm-hmm. and she says, while her withers wither with her. Yes. <laughs> the three same words in a row, just, I mean, I just think it's brilliant. I don't know how he ever did that. And that, to me, was the coolest part, why I was talking before about wanting to be a lyricist, because that, that's just like, I don't know. I don't know even how to describe it, but it's just like, it's well, amazing. He, he has a uh, he has two books that he wrote. One's called um, uh, "Finishing the Hat." One's called "Look, I Made a Hat," and they're in <laughs> one and two about his lyrics. Um, and he writes about that. He writes kind of selfishly 
that he did write lyrics that were just fun to write. Like he didn't have to put that line in there, you know, but it was fun to write that line. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's brilliant. That's the cool part. Like, um, I like the Dixie Chicks, and there's a beginning of a song. I forget the name of the song, but the first line of the song is, you don't like the sound of the truth coming from my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and I and the way it's presented, like, you know, it's um, uh, just the way it's it's put into the song itself. It's just, it's so perfect. And uh, I, I live for stuff like that, like just little clever lines that just say, you know, a thousand words in five words. Right. You know what I mean? Well, that's kind of the, the beauty of lyrics. Yeah, I, I recommend checking the, those books out if you're interested. I definitely will. I appreciate it. All right, so we're under our 10 questions. All right, hit me. Here we go. What is your favorite word? Um, higgledy-piggledy. <laughs> I've it's never hard. heard that word. You have to tell me more. Higgledy-piggledy? Is that what you said? Higgledy-piggledy means a, a real mess. You don't get to use it that often, but when you do, it's the right word. Hey, everything's all higgly piggly. Higgly piggly. Higgly piggly. Higgly I yeah. like it a lot. It sounds English. It sounds very English. Like it, it came from England. Is that? <laughs> I don't need. I don't know where it came from. I just. <laughs> all I, right. I use it when I have to use it. I love it. What is your least favorite word? Literally. Literally, it is literally your least favorite word. Yeah, because nobody uses it correctly. Right. How do you use it correctly? You use it correctly when you're saying that something that can be mistaken as figuratively isn't. So if you say, uh, you know, the the house is literally, you know, the house is literally on fire. It means that the house is. You're not just saying that you know there's some smoke. It means there's, it's really truly a flame, um, and it. If, if you use it more than once a month, you're using it wrong. <laughs> yeah, because there's not usually a confusion about what you mean. Like, in other words, you could leave that word out in almost every case and you'd be saying the same thing. Yeah, it, it's the, the dictionary has adjusted itself and now... It, I hate that. I know. I, I think you're, you're talking about that recently. I think your last guess, it was irregardless or something. Yeah. Which became a word and it should not have become a word just because people use it wrong. Yeah, people keep it. It takes on a life of its own, right? Yeah, I which is uh, which is a very Jungian idea, right? Like people don't have ideas; ideas have people. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yep. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, you know, something simple like capitalism, right? Yes. I mean, it's it's hundreds of years old. You know, I didn't think of it. You didn't think of it. Nobody alive thought of it. So, is it? Do we have? capitalism or does capitalism have us i love that idea anyway what turns you on creatively spiritually or emotionally i think um excellence in in writing um i was thinking about uh, lyrics and when i listened to uh hamilton the musical and the song my shot comes on the lyrics to that song always choke me up not because the song chokes me up nothing about the song that's sentimental but the turns of phrase and the lyrics are so kind of perfect and brilliant that I, I, it makes me feel something beyond what the song is saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you, man. And I don't think, I think we're kind of weird in that, in that way, if you will. I think the vast majority of people don't, don't enjoy that as much as maybe 
<laughs> we do. What do you think? Um, yeah, it, it's hard to it's hard to describe it. To, yeah, yeah. Wh- why that would make me feel something, you know, and why I would get choked. Like I, I could not sing that song because I cry in the middle just when I get to it. It's like looking at a great painting, right, or a beautiful landscape, or something like that, you know. And to me, um, yeah, when you can when you can boil down this incredibly rich idea to a couple words, right? Like when you read a really good writer and you can't read more than a page or two because you have to think about that page for a while before picking it back up again. Right, and you you start to see. You start to think about well, what 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 was a writer doing when he wrote this? You know, what was <laughs> yeah. he thinking when he wrote this? All right, how the fuck did he or she write this? Right? Yeah. How did they come up with it? Okay, what uh, what turns you off? Um, ignorance. Mm, yeah, for sure. What's your favorite curse word? Um, I'm gonna go with a fuck my asshole. <laughs> And I'll just tell you the, the story why why that specifically. I, I think it deserves a story for sure. <laughs> so so my my uncle uh, years ago he was I, I was a, I, I must have been 10, 10 or eleven and he was moving. Um, you know, helping to move. He had the U-Haul, and we're driving, and then he's in the middle of the driving. He goes, "Oh fuck my asshole! Forgot my keys." <laughs> <laughs> And I don't know why that always stuck with me, but that seemed like the height of, you know, what you say when something is, is like tragic, but but not irrecoverable, and it's 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 the right thing to say at the right moment. Yeah, it was it, it, it was not it was not a a request for me. To do. <laughs> it was, it was just literally. That. <laughs> yeah, it was it was what had, what what inspired it. So it Ill, it, illiterally, yeah, yeah something like I, that. I get inspired to to use that when it's necessary. All right, I like it. What sound or noise do you love? Uh, sound of cats purring. Yeah, that's a good one. It's like so calming, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Cause, well, you know, you know, they're enjoying it. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate? So ironically, it, it's the the turned up version of that a really loud motor like a really loud <laughs> car with no muffler going by my house yeah it, it just yeah. distracts me and but it's just a really loud version of a cat purr <laughs> so it's yeah that's interesting everything has its context right yep it's context, cool. context. Uh-huh. what uh what profession other than your own would you like to attempt i think a short order cook why um, when I'm so I'm I'm the cook in the house, and when I'm doing it, um, if I'm making breakfast and I'm making eggs and pancakes and bacon, I have all these things going on at once. You have to time everything right and get everything on the table and make sure it's hot. And it, it's like a, a challenge. Like I just kind of enjoy like, um, you know the that high pressure thing and like knowing that 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 you have to get it get this perfect you don't want these eggs to burn you don't want this mm. bacon over here to get cold you don't want the uh you know you gotta flip the pancakes at the right moment um my, my first ever job was mcdonald's and i was the behind the grill and i just enjoyed that that pressure of okay let's get 12 burgers down let's get 12 eggs down let's get all the stuff done quickly but done right and it was fun so if i if i were to 
if I you know was a billionaire and could do my own job, I'd probably be a diner. <laughs> That's really cool. I'm with you too. I'm sort of neurotic about it. Like I, you know, like the process of getting everything hot and on a plate at the same time. And I don't know if you if you experience this, but the most frustrating thing after that is folks are like, ah, I like a bit. You know, <laughs> it, it doesn't happen often, but it does. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't always make it exciting food. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Okay, uh, so what profession would you not like to do? So this is just me. I would not want to be a nurse. God bless all <laughs> nurses. You know, they are blessings to this planet, and I have many friends who are nurses. I work with many nurses, and it's just something I could not do. Would not want to do be I'm with you and it's such a important job and very challenging and I don't I don't think I'd last a day doing it <laughs> well that's great uh, okay last one if heaven exists what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates this is tough for me because I'm an atheist so it's hard to imagine um, I think I'd like him to quote some of my song lyrics back to me <laughs> what particular <laughs> lyric would would he or she say there's a line in a song from the Phoenix Show called Lights that I've always liked and uh, so, so, so the song is about um, uh, helping somebody cope with something tough and there's a line in the middle that goes um, wait, I, I gotta got a mental get to it <laughs> it happens all it happens all the time to people other than you, but I was one of those other people um, show me what to do. Or I was one of those other people ask me what to do. I like it. That's a great way to end, Chad. I really appreciate you doing this and enjoyed the conversation. And I uh, just want to say thank you. And, and anything you want to plug, where do I find uh, your musicals? Um, so there's really nothing out there publicly yet. Um, Actually, there is something I want to plug. It's, it's, uh, there's some people who are doing, um, they're going through all of Shakespeare's plays and making radio plays of them. And it's called Braving the Bard, bravingthebard.com. Mm -hmm. It did Midsummer Night's Dream, and I wrote the music for that. Um, and that was a new challenge for me. I, that was me just orchestrating everything just on keyboard and guitar. There, was, there is an, an actual song with lyrics that's in that. So check out Midsummer Night's Dream. BravingTheBard.com. Um, they actually did a really nice job with it. And awesome. any Phoenix Trap stuff, apparently on Apple Music is there too. That's awesome. Uh, that sounds great. I will check it out and uh, try to drop in some Phoenix Trap on this recording. But thanks so awesome. much, Chad. Appreciate it. And thank you. Appreciate it. Good talking to you. Well, that ends Country Podcast number 10. That's right, folks. Big milestone, number 10 is recorded. That means we can add it to Spotify and Pandora. So look out for that. In addition to finding us on Apple Podcasts, we're the country on Apple, Google Podcasts, and Pod, the Podbean app. You can find us on thecountry.news. That's our website. And on Facebook and Twitter at The Country USA. In addition, if you would check out Braving the Bar, that sounds really fascinating. Uh, so I'd love to hear Chad's music there. And we just really appreciate you listening. If you like what we're doing, please share with your friends. We'd love to uh, talk to them as well. So thanks so much.
the clock Shrug off the chill Until the seasons goes to call again In reverie this is home 